This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Tony Sutton, Assistant Professor of Native American Food Systems at the University of Maine. During our conversation, you will hear me refer to an off-campus educational program along coastal Maine that I co-led during the fall of 2022. Tony was kind enough to speak with the students on this program and share his perspectives about several of the topics that he and I explored during our conversation. And much of this conversation revolved around the roles of academics and researchers working with local communities. We talked about Tony's work with the Wabanaki people and the emphasis he places on working with them as an equal partner in his research, taking what I would call a more bottom-up rather than top-down approach to research design. Tony described how he views the distinction between scientific and indigenous knowledge as artificial. And I think a concern being expressed here is that such a distinction has often been used to dismiss indigenous knowledge. Tony talked about how an indigenous perspective doesn't see these differences as helpful in the first place. We also talked about a project that Tony is involved in called the Maine Shellfish Learning Network. This seeks to build relationships and communication around issues facing clam and mussel harvesters in Maine. One particularly pressing issue that we talked about towards the end of our conversation is the loss of access such harvesters are facing as a result of displacement by incoming homeowners who purchase houses on the coast of Maine, as well as Maine state policy that privileges sedentarism by requiring residents in a town as a criterion for fishery access, which marginalizes the Wapanaki and other people whose lifeways include moving through a landscape to adapt to changes in resource availability. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tony Sutton. Well, great, Tony. Thanks for talking with me. I'm really excited to, this in some ways feels like a follow-up because we've had a few pretty informal chats, largely through my students on the Dartmouth Health Campus program that you were kind enough to engage with us on. And... I want to just dive right in here with what I now call the origin story question. When you think back on your the personal and professional experiences that you had, decisions that you made that have led you to this point of being an assistant professor of Native American food systems at the University of Maine, what comes to mind? What narrative do you tell yourself to make sense of how you got to this point? Well, if I can tell three short stories, we can get to that that origin. And I think there's probably like three different moments where I kind of see myself kind of, I see like my journey is kind of like, I always felt there was a pull to like a certain question or a certain topic, but I didn't quite really know what it was. But that pull was really kind of what, you know, brought me into kind of the academic space. And it started as story number one, you know, as an undergraduate studying history and being an indigenous person studying history. Um, it, it wasn't for a, a neglect of my instructors because I had a really great, you know, really great undergraduate experience. I just felt that, you know, I, I wasn't represented as an indigenous person. So that was kind of the first pull of that curiosity, you know, like, you know, why wasn't I a part of this conversation. Um, and that kind of led me, you know, to going to graduate school and and moving, you know, returning to my homeland in Maine to do that. Um, an experience kind of number two was, you know, my master's was working with the, the Mi'kmaq farms in, in Presque Isle. So um, 
not quite my community, but, you know, Mi'kmaq considered relatives to the Passamaquoddy. And, and I think kind of that experience number two out of all the things that, that I did, um, it also let me feel what it was like to be a part of an indigenous community. Cause although I'm not a, a member of their, their tribe, I certainly became a community member because while I was helping on their farm, I was living and working there and, you know, sort of like an ethnographer, I, I came a part of that. Um, mm. and I kind of hung on to that feeling and, you know, experience number three, you know, when I was doing my, my dissertation, working with my own community and working with the, the river that supports our homeland, you know, the Shkudik River and the watershed, um, I just had this profound experience where we were, you know, holding ceremony in the upper watershed to welcome the return of the alewives. And a lot of the work the Passamaquoddy do is to restore sea run fish in that region. And, and I remember having this smoked fish and it was just, you know, like the atmosphere and everything was just incredible. You know, we had drummers there with people praying for the food. It was very spiritual. And then like, then to, to be able to, to eat the food, it's kind of like, this is what the tribe's been working to do. Um, I think that moment tasting that fish, like it, you know, kind of attached to me in a lot of ways. And that's kind of what, you know, is driving my work now is I really see that vision for restoration and I want to center that with my work. And then the other part of that, that experience was also just recognizing that, you know, my wife who was breastfeeding at the time also, you know, Passamaquoddy, um, you know, couldn't eat the fish because of current regulations for pollution. And, you know, that's another driving factor to think about, you know, indigenous foodways as being so polluted that, you know, our youngest and most important, you know, the next generation can't even, can't even try that until they're adults. You know, it's, it's another part of this, this problem that's kind of driving my work going forward. So I'd say those kind of three experiences is like my origin story. And that's why I'm doing all this. For listeners, can we give a bit more background on the alewife issue? I mean, my understanding is that one of the driving factors that needs to be addressed is the fact that you know, white colonists, once they colonized the area, dammed up a lot of these rivers. This is a fish that needs to go back into the river to breed. And that's finally disrupted both the alewife, but I mean, several other species in the area as well. Is that, do I have that right as like the, the, the most important piece of that background? Is there other stuff that, that needs to be added? Is that what from you learned or what you learned from me? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Now, now I'm feeling uncertain. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I take any chance there is to talk about, you know, the the history around that, and I think it also goes back to, you know, we're we're the people who spear Pollock, and and because that's a practice that people saw us doing, you know, going to the shoreline to catch fish, and there's even stories of people doing that, but being able to use like their boiling pots, like their biggest ones, like people think of like their lobster pots um, and, and being able to scoop up fish in them because the fisheries are so potent mm -hmm. and the, the alewives and the river herring are seen as being, you know, the fish that feeds everything. So rebuilding those populations is known to support healthier ground fish populations. So cod, haddock, pollock, um, that's why Passamaquoddies are are working to restore the watershed because, you know, we are the people of Spear Pollock and, you know, we will be the people of Spear Pollock in the future as well. Um, and to your question, like those origins, where does that come from? You know, there's a lot of different factors that led to the fisheries, you know, you know, like offshore fishing practices and nearshore fishing practices. And, and I think 
the story that I focus on the most in relation to that, you know, you did mention dams, but part of that history is also that, you know, the, the settling of this region occurred uh, through British uh, violating treaties and specifically targeting our sites of sustenance. Um, you know, not to get too much into the history, but, you know, they, they had lost many battles to Wabanaki people and were pushed as far back as Kittery, Maine, which is literally the bottom part of the state. Um, so the violation of treaties was when they, um, after they lost that dispute, they wanted to still move into this area and they kind of repositioned their strategy to say, hey, what are the most important places for Wabanaki people? There are these places people gathered at like waterfalls where the fish were also gathering. So they built forts there um, to displace people from fisheries. Um, and after those forts lost their purpose, like after the Revolutionary War and things like that, those waterfalls would be reconstituted for uh, American industries, you know, specifically like sawmills and then later paper mills and, and in any other industries that were really developing uh, around the riverways. So not only do you have people's fisheries being targeted, so they're removed from them, but um, then those places become developed in ways that are inconsistent with um, the ecologies. And then that influences the story I told you earlier, you know, why my wife couldn't eat the fish is because they're so polluted from those same um, industrial histories. Okay. And Tony, can you say a little bit more about your dissertation work? What were the main questions that you're really focusing on that got you started in this research program that you're continuing with now? Uh, my questions were, what are the questions that matter for the community? Um, the only reason I studied alewives and the the river restoration is because that's what the community is interested in. Um, and, you know, through many conversations, we kind of found how we could collaborate together and how I could use this role as a research researcher to support that work. And, you know, for the people doing that restoration, they were really interested in, you know, Passamaquoddy fishers and their experience of, of viewing these changes. You know, again, we're the people who spear Pollock, but that's still a practice that people remember doing. So it's not like something that's a far off distant thing. So, you know, they're interested in engaging with these, these elders around when they saw these changes occurring and, and what that, what that did for kind of like species abundance and distribution and things like that. Um, so what we did was, you know, some kind of standard qualitative interviews that were shaped around some of those questions, you know, like what species did you um, fish primarily, you know, when did you notice them start to change and, you know, what are the species like today just to kind of, you know, some basic things like that. But, you know, what I really wanted to do differently is just recognize that interviews are extracting knowledge. Um, and, and those are all kind of colonial processes. So instead of writing my dissertation and analyzing these stories, like how we're typically trained, I I created a process to return the data to the community. And they hold that data now, not me. Um, that's theirs to use for uh, future work. Okay. So I basically had to write a dissertation that justifies why I'm not analyzing this, provide enough information to show the academy that I did do something, and then I gave the the full report and the full data to the community, um, which is a little bit different than your normal kind of analysis. Uh, yeah, it seems quite different. I imagine that you've continued with these norms in your current work. Have you? Has it? Has it? felt like a tricky balancing act. I mean, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, Tony, as well is, and this is again, based on 
our engagements with you on the off-campus program last month feels like a long time ago now but um as kind of a boundary actor as someone who's got their their feet and in, in in different social spaces has multiple aspects to their identity that are engaging with each other as an academic as an indigenous academic how has it been to navigate those spaces for you in your continuing career well, I think there's kind of two things I'd say, like, I don't really kind of consider myself any kind of like boundary spanner or anything like that. I think that's kind of, you know, it's caught up in that kind of colonial thinking where we're we're creating differences and how we're thinking about knowledge and, and that we have to move between them. Um, but I'd rather kind of blur those boundaries. I think more of a, at least me personally, I feel like, you know, the, the work that I've seen, like Wabanaki people don't differentiate between different forms of of, of knowing you know, they're incorporating all those, you know, within a specific project. I think that's only kind of the colonial thinking that has pushed uh, indigenous knowledge and science out of those things. And, and right now, I really see my work as bringing those back together so we can more fully realize, you know, the transformations that were that need to happen to make things like, for instance, fisheries more accessible. And that kind of brings me back to like, kind of like, the, like tensions at the university. Like I, I get asked questions commonly, like people want to engage with indigenous fishers around topics that feed into their questions. And at the same time, like none of their questions can address why only one Wabanaki nation in Maine has access to the saltwater. Um, because again, they're, they're not thinking about it from an indigenous perspective. They're, they're kind of thinking about it as like this, these knowledge is being separate. Um, they're not asking the questions that the communities are asking. So um, how I'm trying to, you know, reposition that as being an academic in that academic space is, you know, I, I center kind of listening within that and relationship building. Um, I, I feel like, you know, starting off, I've had a lot of conversations where I've, I've met somebody and by the end of the hour, at the end of the Zoom session, you know, they're they're already proposing, you know, some multi-million dollar project. And and I, I think that's kind of a different pace of how Indigenous people work from my experience. I think, I feel like collaboration starts with coffee, um, to coin that term, you know, it starts with relationship building mm -hmm. because there's been so many people, so many researchers who have gone to indigenous communities to extract knowledge, to never come back. Um, that's not the relationship that I want. You know, I, I believe in the vision of restoring the, the Shudik and to do that, I have to maintain relationships over time and, and keep showing back up and keep contributing, you know, energy to those systems. Um, so if I'm starting a collaboration within the first hour of knowing somebody, I'm I'm, I'm not really uh, I'm not really listening. I've already thought about what I want to do. The, the conversation's already strategic, mm. mm -hmm. and I and I think that conversation is also really valuable because it makes people have to step back and rethink. Like, well, why am I asking these questions? There's usually a lot of history as to why they're asking those questions, and and not a lot of people want to unpack those histories um so a lot of my work is obviously about food and foodways but i spend a lot of time also thinking about the histories that have shaped those places to begin with anyways um hmm. i'll give you an example so okay in maine colonial colonialism is so potent that um abenaki people aren't associated with river restoration of the kennebec river um, and if anybody listening you know wants to look up kennebec river restoration and they can start reading 
you know, the narratives, they're all focused on the ecologies. And that's because the same narrative that targeted um, Wabanaki foodways by looking at our sites of sustenance, you know, displaced the Abenaki people so far that now they live in Canada. Um, so they can't participate in those processes and they can't shape those questions. The point you made about this artificial distinction between different types of knowledge is something I've been thinking a lot more about in the last couple of years since I've read literature on, you can get very meta very quickly about this, but there's a literature talking about kind of so-called Western or wider colonial ways of thinking and a more Eastern, more traditional local way of thinking. And I'm aware that even by saying there's this one and then there's the other, I'm kind of falling into the trap of saying there's there's one and then there's the other, and I'm kind of dis making these distinctions. That said, this has done some helpful work for me, these two perspectives, one of which says I want to chunk things out. I want to analyze things in their, in their different bits, and I want sharp boundaries between my categories. And that's like a particular frame of mind that, you know, the more I've reflected on it for myself, I feel like that's, I have a lot of that. And I've I've also taken as a mark of my intellectual maturity analysis, something I try to teach my students that we need to be more comfortable with. It's not A or B, it's often both. We need to tolerate ambiguity and not have this kind of knee-jerk need for distinction when for a long time, for a lot of us, that being able to make these clean lines was seen as a sign of of intellectual maturity itself, that like you can make these distinctions between things. And so those are the thoughts my brain was having when you were saying, well, it's not kind of science, it's not local or traditional or indigenous knowledge. It's And, and it, I feel like you said this to us when we were in Maine, that these things are not kind of necessarily antagonistic with each other. The other thing you said that really did resonate with me, Tony, is because I've, I've been in situations where people kind of get together and say, oh, like, let's, you kind of, they start with an opportunity, like a proposal and say, how do we get the people in the room? And like, let's make this happen. It feels very instrumentalist, as I think you maybe use the word strategic and like, let's start with this and assume that we want the money in this. And then we figure out how to get along enough to like, and that's, I, I've called it like the baton model of interdisciplinarity. We're like, okay, I have mine. I run my lap. I hand it off to Tony. I'm in my box. He's in his box. And we check certain boxes and then we, you know, we keep on going until the relay is done. And that's never felt like a satisfying way to do it because you're not actually collaborating, you know, and and, and I, I totally agree with you that better collaborations feel more like they're from the bottom up. There is a longer term investment. You use the word listening, which feels very powerful. And honestly, I feel like the reason why that doesn't happen isn't because a part of I feel like a part of us knows that that's what humans need to really engage with each other. They need time. They need to see your face. And it's simply that that gets crowded out by tunnels that we go down and i don't want to just blame it on the incentives and the system because that feels like punting as well and taking agency away from ourselves and changing things as well but it does seem a lot of us get stuck in that trap where it's like okay I, I, you know i've got my incentive this is what i'm going to do i'm going to try to get this grant and before i know it i've been working with people for two years and i struggle with this earlier in my career of going to different places feeling like the work was was I would talk to people and they would ask me, how is this going to help me? I did not have a good answer in some of the research I was doing. And that's, for my own journey, a, a big part of the reason why I've stayed in the Dominican Republic is it has felt like, you know, I've been there for eight or nine years now, it has felt more reciprocal. 
and then I'm able to kind of consistently show up there as a certain, you know, as me, you know, and the more you show up to a place, the more of yourself you can bring to that place. Um, yeah, I mean, I've got tons of follow-ups on that as well. Cause go I, for it. I yeah. think the first one, I think is just so important. Like, you know, to, to your point, like when you, when you said that, it just made me feel like, you know, your, your heart was more in that work. And that's why I feel like it starts with relationships because you're engaging within these partnerships because there's some commonalities, you know, whatever, whatever both groups are doing, you know, within the world, they're, they're sharing something. So, you know, sending those relationships just allows you to develop conversations around that, that genuine passion and interest that, that people share. And then when you start by, you know, reaching out with a cold email, that's also like, and, you know, write this letter of support for our grant, you've already kind of, you haven't given yourself space to to demonstrate that passion. And we've had several conversations. This is probably the first time I've heard, you know, you mentioned something in that capacity. Um, and, and to me, once you start getting to that point, that's when people realize, hey, this person, you know, is genuine about this work. And maybe they're going to break these habits of people showing up and then not coming back because that's what we're accustomed to seeing. Mm. Um, and, and to some of your comments about like, you know, ambiguity, and then your later comments on questions, like those two are related, like to listen and be patient within the like academic structure feels really uncomfortable. You know, I'm working with, you know, graduate students right now, and, and we're processing that all together because to not be in the position to ask the questions and design the questions puts you at a different point in that power dynamic, which is good because, you know, particularly for indigenous communities, they haven't been in that position to decide the questions and decide the scope. So to give up that control is why you have to tolerate ambiguity. It's why it's uncomfortable. And it's why that people don't do that. Um, they, they're giving up that control. Can I respond real quick to that, Tony? Yeah. I just think that's really important. I mean, yeah, I was talking to a new colleague of mine um, who's a development consultant. We were talking about these dynamics of of an external person coming into a system. And we we're just, you know, we're asking ourselves about the psychology of that. Like, why would someone feel the need to kind of exert control in a system and establish that authority? And part of my like, and so we had some kind of like naive, you know, psycho psychoanalysis. But it seems like part of it is, you know, a lack of self-awareness about your own motivations. And what are you... um what needs are you satisfying as an external actor that comes in and imposes your authority on a system, you know, and can you meet those needs some other way? You know, are there insecurities in your, in your own life that are being, you're coping with by exerting power and authority in a particular system so that you can watch yourself do that. And could you meet those needs somewhere else in your life so that you don't have to like make that imposition? And maybe this is too much of a tangent, but this is, you know, I think it's worthwhile to also think about because something, a question I, I wanted to ask you, Tony, is, you know, as educators, right, I think it's a worthwhile question for us to ask, like, how do you train people towards this alternative perspective and approach? Because these are very, I don't like the words like hard versus soft, because I think there's a lot of like evaluative, I mean, these are not technical skills per se. It's not like learning how to do a spreadsheet is not the same thing as learning how to listen 
they're very interpersonally complex and they, they, they relate to our understandings of ourselves and what we bring to the table. That's a lot to try to like train a graduate student in. And it's, you know, in my experience, not a part of formal PhD education. I'd be interested in if your experience was different. But I've heard this from several guests of this of this podcast that one of the main, you know, some people call it a method of like listening as a method. It's really important for them. And I think labeling it as a method is important because it kind of legitimizes it in the language of science. It's like this is another way of collecting data, right? It's like it, it, it fits that narrative at that point. So I guess my question to you, Tony, is like how how do we train people to listen and have some of these sensitivities and all the other stuff that comes with it? Yeah, I would go back to, you know, starting with the listening. I would even say there's a difference between listening for understanding and then also listening for data. So I don't, you know, I consider if listening as data is part of that, you know, that that occurs after IRB, you know, I think all this stuff, relationship building, that 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 occurs before there has been a partnership that's established. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's two people who are getting to know each other and they're learning, they're developing that relationship. They're like I said, they're understanding, you know, the the passions and and the ethics that that person has. And then, you know, if those two, you know, feel like things are, I don't know, coming together in a way that a partnership could support that work, then that's great. And I think part of that conversation is also recognizing that, you know, people won't necessarily you know, necessarily have, have something. Like there are people that I maintain relationships with. I don't have an expectation to do a, a research project. Um, if later something comes up that me as an academic can support you know, their work as, for instance, like an indigenous food producer, I will absolutely do that. But, you know, me showing up to help out is me showing up to help out. You know, there's no data collection. It's, it's me being Tony, um, you know, Skijin person, you know, being present like, you know, we should be doing. Um, so, yeah, I think that distinction, but I think a lot of those conversations can can really happen in that classroom setting. And, and the kind of way I approach that, you know, you you mentioned earlier, like, you know, finding your needs in a different way. Um, I think I approach that with research and teaching, but just briefly the research part, like I try and focus on research outcomes that disconnect me from analyzing my own community because that, that's part of what's problematic too. I don't need to be writing papers about, you know, analyzing the restoration techniques of the, the Passamaquoddy. That's not productive. But what is productive as a part of that is, is really unpacking all the histories that are untold that have shaped that river to begin with in the first place, because that's shaping the collaborative context. Um, and then as a part of that, we can also have this conversation. So if anybody's thinking about it, collaboration starts with coffee. I'm coining that for future title. You know, we can also start talking about these conversations of what, you know, engagement looks like and what it needs to be to actually create, you know, a genuine relationship that can, that can or may produce, you know, collaborative efforts together that can be another way and then part of that is also you know critiquing you know the academy itself and how it is extracted forms of knowledge and and how we need to break those habits and educating students on those processes so um one way i'm you know as i'm a young faculty developing classrooms i'm trying to integrate 
those questions into some of them so they understand like, well, you know, what is indigenous knowledge and science? Where, where does it come from? Um, what happened to it? So they start to understand how, you know, we position science as, you know, the only way of knowing. And we, we know the qualitative quantitative debate so well too. And at the same time, that debate completely obscures indigenous science. And ironically, a lot of the, the research and collaboration occurring around like ecological problems now is really desperate to get indigenous knowledge and science. At the same time, they're really unfamiliar with how the institutions that they're working under have contributed to that distancing. So uh, we need to understand how that distancing has occurred. And, and then from an indigenous standpoint, you know, we just can't talk about the traumas of how um, indigenous people and their science have been obscured. We have to show um, how it's contributing healing um, healing in the sense of, you know, those ecologies, but uh, healing in the sense that it's being privileged for what it's always has been, you know, the, the science that has managed, you know, this landscape in ways that made it so desirable to um, European colonists that they wanted to take it. Um, mm. It wasn't coincidence that things were the way they were. They, they were that way because they were managed in, in relationship. Okay. I mean, just to um, follow up on one of the things you said, Tony, because it, it's it's reflects this question I asked you earlier about the the balance that you need to strike. So, you mentioned that it's it's not productive for you to write about your own communities. So, in your in your publishing, which as an academic you need to do to signal, right, that you're doing your job, you you avoid publishing about your own community. Is that like something like, like a decision you've consciously made? Yeah, I could see how people interpret that problematic or not pro problematic. And, and what I really mean by that, like, um, I'm trying to create distance between the, the work that they're doing and the work that like, you know, my dissertation, the work that I want to support them to do. And if my mm -hmm. stake in that game is just me being able to produce an article from that, I, I don't feel good about that. Okay. Um, that's me personally, but I, I feel like there's so many things I could write about and could publish about that also are supportive of their work. To me, that feels like a more balanced relationship. Like you said, like me unpacking the histories of the Scudic River watershed, that's something that they can then fold into their work too. And then they don't have to read like their own quotes back to them in some mm. weird theoretical analysis. Like to me, that feels like an odd dynamic. Um, and, okay. And it's, it's it represents kind of the that extraction that I want to work away from. Um, so again, I think there's conversations that are a part of that and come from that and can complement that. And I want to have those, but you know, I don't want there to be any sort of you know critical lens um, of, of me analyzing my own community because how does that then shape my trust and relationship going forward when those right. community members read how I'm writing about them? Yep. Um, you know, I'm thinking about that. I'd rather cr critique the the knowledge production systems. That sounds like more fun. And, yeah. and they understand that too. Yeah. Um, no, that makes sense. No, that totally makes sense. Um, Tony, I want to make sure that we get to a couple other topics as well. Can you talk to me about um, the main shellfish learning network that you've been involved in for a while? What are its goals and how are you working to achieve them? Yeah, our our mission very similarly we 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 center uh, listening, learning, and and leadership in the you know Wabanaki and Maine wild softshell clam and mussel fishery, um, and so kind of at its core, and one of the reasons that drew me to that is kind of uh, the way that it's it's centering Wabanaki values of listening, 
And, and I think that's really flexible because, you know, oftentimes, you know, we all know that knowledge is siloed in different areas, but when you're kind of centering Wabanaki values within a fishery, um, it allows you to actually do a lot of different things. Like um, then I can make the connection between access to clamming is necessary because we also understand that the pollution of our rivers has limited our access to other species. So um, we can have kind of more fuller conversation about fisheries and foodways when we do that. Um, but I also think that bringing that in is important for uh, fisheries like the clam fishery because uh, you know, colonial systems impact all people within that space. It, it may not impact them the same way, but it's going to impact, you know, users of those resources. And that's, you know, paraphrasing Max Liberon's work. Um, but like, as an example, I was like, I saw this, this clamor at the grocery store one time and he was like glowing. Um, and I remember that particular day, it was a double tide, so they could go out at 5 a.m. and then go out at 5 p.m. Um, you work two tides in one day, you know, double paycheck. And he said, how are you doing today? And I said, I'm doing good. How about you? And he said, I'm doing great. You know, I got, I think it was like either $3.99 or $4.99 a pound for, um, that's what the dealer was buying his clams for. And usually they're somewhere around like a dollar, less than $2 for sure, you know, depending on what type of season. So um, I realized like he was all cleaned up, wearing a nice bright white shirt, all showered, hair slicked back, you know, buying some food for the rest of the day. And I was like, he's not working in the afternoon because he made enough money on that first tide that he doesn't have to go back out. And I just remember like how beautiful of like a moment that was. And like the main shellfish learning network is really kind of like a metaphor of that. Like, like we recognize the beauty of this industry and we want to make sure that clamors can keep clamming. And at the same time, we also recognize if we're not, um, you know, bringing a critical lens to that, that the that system of clamming can actually exclude Wabanaki clamors from that conversation too. So, you know, we want, um, you know, to support all clamors within that because there's been so many, Clammy impacts all people. It's only the the modern kind of policy around that that shapes who can access the clamming and, and how. Okay. And at the risk of, again, repeating back to you something you might have told me a month ago, but I want to provide a little bit more like biophysical context for the listeners, right? I mean, the website for this is called like the mudflat.org. Is that correct? Yep. And so this is all taking place in a mudflat. And I feel like if you haven't been to this area, it's really hard to appreciate just how significant this is as like its own biome in coastal Maine because the tides are so, like they're so extraordinary, right? Like the, the, the difference between high tide and low tide is so large. It's like 12 or more feet often, which creates this, this kind of unique biome between high tide and low tide, which is the mudflat, which is where these folks are doing the clamming. So far, so good. That sounds great. Yeah, and 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 that's what we we tried to bring the the students out onto. And the mud it was muddier this year, Tony. I mean, it was last year we kind of could get around. This year it was just getting ten feet from A to B was like a major success for any of us. I, I was I'm amazed that these folks can kind of get in there and and actually like be economically productive. Um, but you mentioned that you know one of the main concerns in this space is access. And then that's been changing over time. And during our conversation with you last month, this relates to, in my mind, several concepts you mentioned, um, foodways or lifeways of the Wabanaki. 
And this, and in my mind, that also relates to movement, this idea of moving across the landscape and a seascape as being a part of the lifeways or foodways of the Wabanaki. And I'd love to just hear you talk a bit more about that, about how that mobility or that movement as a way of living has been has been marginalized via the current way in which access to the mudflats is being restricted by formal policy. I guess that's how I'll put it. Could you talk a bit more yeah. about that? Yeah, let's, and- let's get into that. And, okay. and I, and again, I want to give, uh, I want to shape that response in ways that is also, you know, factoring that beaming cleaned up clamor I was talking about doesn't have to work that second tide. And the way that I approach that. So access to clams right now is a is a topic that is um, very much of concern and and how it's being talked about is you know after pandemic lots of coastal real estate is being purchased up and clamors you know predominantly non-wabanaki clamors is what they're talking about are losing access that they had like handshake agreements like they could cross somebody's yard and then you know, go and dig clams. And so they're losing those access points. Either people are buying those houses and not living there, or, you know, they don't, you know, don't want people crossing over. So as a result, people have to, you know, utilize boats to travel greater distances, and they're not getting compensated for those additional costs. And it's just more dangerous in general. And then the same landowners can also pass legislation that limits how loud of boats they can use within the same intertidal area that they're trying to get to. So um, I'm actually trying to use, again, kind of this position of power as in an academic to open up that space of access. And I recently had um, you know, a conversation that framed access as starting 300 years ago um, with how these colonial forts displaced people, not only from rivers, but from coastal places too. Um, and if you all, like the listeners, want to hear kind of a really place-based perspective on that, they can look up uh, Geo Neptune wrote an article about um, Acadia National Park and really kind of broke down how, you know, that place was was kind of colonized and how Wabanaki people got pushed out of that area and how that's currently related to Wabanaki access. And that's the question you're really asking is, if you look at Geo's article, they illustrate in the, it was like 1893, something like that, the city of Bar Harbor. Um, I don't know if they passed a policy through their local government or not. I'd have to recheck Geo Neptune's article, but the outcome was they pushed Wabanaki people out of Pazumkug, the, uh, the island that they've inhabited for, for you know centuries. They pushed them out of town and off the island. And then in modern times, because of that history, because the state of Maine could have the authority to uh, basically tell Wabanaki people where they could live, um, now they don't qualify for what's, you know, the state defines as residential clamming licenses. So how the fishery works is each municipal government gets to determine their commercial licenses and they use residency requirements to do that. So you lived within a municipal government for, you know, however they define it. Um, the state has a template for it, so municipal governments can kind of adopt it or change it, but they're usually all pretty consistent. Um, and this is kind of like the earlier point. Um, and most most clamors, I'd say, you know, don't really know this history. And when I bring it up, I feel like they're receptive of that because they understand what it's like 
you know, to be pushed out of an area, they're just unfamiliar with that, the very same places that they're clamming. And oftentimes, you know, local governments have pushed Wabanaki people out of there. So, you know, just a hundred years ago. So now they don't qualify the, for those same, you know, sort of residential licenses, um, you know, as clamors living kind of more fixed lives too. Um, I think part of your question was also thinking about movement, but I think, you know, this idea of the state of Maine being able to tell people where they could live, I think is especially problematic, especially if your fishery is designed around these sort of residency terms. I mean, it, it, it really was an aha moment for me when we heard you talk about this like a month ago for a few reasons. One, because there, I do have this intuition that place-based requirements is one of our intuitions for how rights are established. So when we went to Monhegan Island and we learned about the lobster fishing rights along the islands of Maine, several of them have residency requirements. You have to live on the island if you're going to be able to fish from there. It's a very effective way of excluding outsiders and empowering insiders. How you feel about that exclusion largely depends, well, for me, it's, it, it depends on who the insiders and who the outsiders are, right? Like who's getting excluded and who's being included. But I think it's a pretty common way in which access is limited and you know you face it and i won't try to enumerate all the different ways i think you see that but i think you see it in a lot of places and in some ways that you know makes sense one of the challenges that farmers in the western u.s face is that there isn't you know that that rights to water have been unbundled from rights to land and so that enables water markets and then that water gets sold off the land and so sometimes you you do want this kind of resident it's not quite a residency requirement there but this idea that no you have to be there and use the water there and it can't be sold off to denver and so there's there's as, there's examples of this i could think of where i'd be pro some kind of like residency or proximate requirement but then the same principle and this is where i think it gets complicated when you have like one principle that says okay i can this sounds good to me in one place but then in another place it's, it sounds like it's the opposite of what we really want Right. And so in this context, the residency requirement, okay, it's empowering some local folks, but it's empowering them at the expense of kind of further marginalizing the historic users of the resource because their their ways of using the land really don't fit within the framing of those who have like now governed. And at that, Tony also feels like it's it's that also feels very common. Like, I feel like there's examples of this all around the world of the kind of the forced sedentarization of local communities by colonial powers, by governments, you know, centralized state governments has been a lot written about this are very uncomfortable with mobile groups and communities. They want them to settle down. It makes them easier to control and to tax and to govern. And so when I heard you when you when I heard you say that that reminded me of all of that as well. And so I was like I was I was asking myself, is this a, a, a another example of this, of this colonial powers coming in and saying, oh well, we can't this you are, these folks are moving around too much. We can't handle that. It needs to be in this particular one spot. That's kind of all the things my brain started thinking about even a month ago when you started talking about that. Yeah, I get what you're saying, and and so you know it's clear for for everyone, you know, Wabanaki people, and, and they still do, you know, we, you know, organize ourselves based on, you know, what season is like right now, people are organized around the moose hunt. Um, and, you know, we also have parts in our, in our culture, like our calendar, like the moose calling moon, um, where we're recognizing the lunar phases of when that, 
that season actually starts and it's still accurate today. So like that system of knowledge, that's why I'm always pushing it as being, you know, it's a system of science because last time I checked the longer that information is accurate for kind of makes it scientific. Um, but, you know, to your point, I kind of see it as like, it's this, this tolerance of injustice that becomes reproduced in different ways. Um, because access has been a colonial tool, like to remove people from access, like that's literally what the policy was intended to do. And because people tolerated it, now it's just being repurposed in a different way. But instead of, you know, forts claiming these sites of sustenance, you know, wealthy landowners who aren't all bad people, I don't want, you know, that them to, to feel like that too. I'm just saying this act of being able to, to buy up the coast is kind of like another iteration of that displacement, but it's being felt by a different population of people. I, you know, I see it as it's another iteration of this colonial context, but in this case, we're not selling the fish, we're selling the view. Um, mm -hmm. And, and because of that, we're, we're removing access from other people's uh, ability to participate in that space. Um, and for me, again, I'm trying to use that as an opportunity to reopen all those access issues. And I do think that, you know, it's, it's a potent place to do that because, um, again, when I tell those stories, I, I feel clamors are, they identify with that. They know what it feels like. So it's not just me being an academic saying, hey, you know, we're just tolerating colonialism and it's repurposing it. They're like, no, I, I know what it feels like to be you know, excluded from a system and to be told where I can and cannot go. It may not be the same, but they understand what that, what that's like. Um, mm. But yeah, to your point, like, you know, part of this colonial, colonial worldview is this sort of like fixed notion of, you know, people live here, you build your house and you build your systems and your things like that. Like all of our systems are built around, you know, these sites of sustenance, like people doing the moose hunt right now, it, it, it's families who are working together to do that. They build this sense of community in this place temporary. They, they share meals, they share the processing of the animal, they share tasks, they share stories, they share laughs, um, they share the science around how they're managing that through their values and stories and things like that. So all those systems become enacted in these places instead of you know, setting them up as buildings here and there. Um, and, you know, these, like you're, you're suggesting, you know, there's been policies implemented to inhibit that. So that way it's probably so land could be, you know, repurposed and, and reconstituted into resources um, because it wasn't an advantage for, you know, development if seasonally we want to go back to these places to engage in these activities probably hard from a planning perspective for me yeah. um, blunt about it but um yeah so those policies like you were saying are, are meant to keep people in these fixed locations to to shape their life ways but um you know those policies they may be powerful and at the same time they're arbitrary because i feel like we're still you know reclaiming those places and we're still coming back to them because those places want us in them too it's just again it's a different worldview mm. um in terms of the politics of this tony is is there kind of a potential common cause between wabanaki and non-wabanaki um clam harvesters is there like a common threat that, that they can kind of unite against in terms of threat to access? I mean, I don't want to reiterate kind of like what I just said. I, 
you know, I, I, I think right now it's just since access is being felt by, you know, non-Indigenous clamors, um, I, I think it just creates an opportunity to talk about, well, these are all the the access issues. And that's why I wanted to talk mm. about like that beaming clamor, because I think that's every, every clamor, you know, Indigenous or non-Indigenous understands like, you know, to do the thing that they do that, you know, they're grateful for, they have a connection to that place. Um, you know, we always hear stories from clamors about how, how they recognize the beauty and what they're able to do every day. And, and I don't think they take it lightly when they learn that there's people who are excluded from that system. You know, they're not certainly for, you know, like some of your comments earlier were suggesting kind of like an open system. I, you know, I don't think we need to think about this as either or, because they're certainly against kind of an open license system. Mm-hmm. And I also want to, you know, res- respect that because, you know, that allows anyone to come in. Um, that's also the fear I hear from aquaculturists. That's why I'm saying it's like the tolerance of, of colonialism. They're fearful that other people are going to move in and take their places. And at the same time, they they don't understand the history that allows them to be doing aquaculture on the coast to begin with. Um, let's see, we're, we're getting off track, but like, yeah, the common thing, like I think is that, that beauty of, of that livelihood and protecting it. And there's a lot of terms being talked, tossed around, like protect fishing heritages and things like that. Um, and I think the questions we need to be asking is whose heritage are we protecting? And if we're thinking about that more fully, then we can protect ourselves from those same systems that are going to bite us now or into the future. Um, so, you know, if, if we're addressing access more fully and understanding how Wabanaki people have been displaced from that, I think we can create some future protections for all clamors in the future because we're, we're, we're not being tolerant of a structure just because it impacts us, but because it impacts all clamors within here. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.